From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's LGBTQ community fears the progress they've made towards equality might be in jeopardy. That's because of a concurring opinion in the U.S. Supreme Court's abortion ruling. Justice Clarence Thomas raises the specter of more reversals. He explicitly names two cases that I think are instrumental in LGBTQ rights. How activists here will mobilize and why the midterms will be critical. Then three professors of color have quit their jobs at the University of Denver. There has been a lack of resources and opportunities to actually be the leader that I know myself to be. Later, hear from the keeper of the Stanley Cup, which now belongs to Denver. There's only one, and I think that's what makes it very unique. The success of Colorado Public Radio relies on support from active members. Members like you are necessary in order for CPR to be your source for in-depth news and music discovery. Our fiscal year ends June 30th. You can help keep this service strong and help keep funding goals on target with your gift today. Help fuel news and music on Colorado Public Radio now and in the year to come at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The abortion ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court sent worrisome signals to Colorado's LGBTQ community just as they celebrate pride. In a concurring opinion, it was suggested that with the end of Roe v. Wade, the court should reconsider cases prohibiting sodomy laws and allowing for gay marriage. One Colorado, which fights for LGBTQ equality, is watching this closely. Garrett Royer is the group's deputy director. Garrett, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. All right. Justice Alito writes, the court emphasizes that this decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. Do you take comfort in that? I think that's a difficult question to answer, considering there is clearly a contradiction with the concurring opinion from Clarence Thomas, because he explicitly names two cases that I think are instrumental in LGBTQ rights. And in order for Alito to argue that established precedent of Roe v. Wade, which is a 50-year precedent, and it should be challenged under due process, and then to not recognize the implications that could potentially have for two related cases that are already argued using due process seems like he's trying to have it both ways. And I think Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion, made that much more explicit of what the intentions of some of these justices are trying to do. Justice Thomas invoking very specifically Obergefell which legalized same-sex marriage in many places across the country. Mm -hmm. So help us understand what protections are there for a same-sex marriage in this state? This is what's incredibly concerning is that there are no existing protections in Colorado. Besides the Supreme Court ruling. Besides the Supreme Court ruling. It's 
clearly one of the things that Governor Polis has said that he wants to make a priority for the next legislative session. It's one of the main priorities for One Colorado going into the next legislative session of ensuring that we can codify marriage protections here in Colorado. But yes, there are no existing protections other than the Obergefell decision. Would you want that codified in statute? For instance, as Colorado has done with abortion access, would you like to see that in the state constitution to protect gay marriage? I think that LGBTQ folks in Colorado would be happy to see it be codified either way. Um, It would be much more difficult to go a constitutional route because that would likely then have to go in front of the voters. And we've seen in Colorado that in past constitutional amendments, in the Amendment 2 decision, for example, Colorado voters let down LGBTQ people um, and voted to block non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ folks. So I think that it would be preferable to go through statute. But at this point, we need to make sure and guarantee that the protections that LGBTQ folks to marry currently exist and maintain in place in Colorado. You uh, invoked Amendment 2, which Mm -hmm. was passed in 1992. Mm -hmm. And uh, it basically said that no community, no level of government in Colorado could pass anti-discrimination laws Mm -hmm. that earned Colorado for a time uh, the moniker the hate state. Yes. It sounds like you're still smarting from that, Garrett. I wouldn't say smarting. I think that Colorado has come an incredibly long way. Um, We elected the first openly gay governor. We have a pro-equality majority in both chambers of our state legislature. But It's important to remember the history of Colorado as it pertains to LGBTQ rights. We are now one of the leading states when it comes to LGBTQ rights. We have some of the strongest protections when it comes to non-discrimination protections, when it comes to the access for transgender folks to access gender-affirming care. But I still would be concerned about handing over the rights of LGBTQ folks to the voters if they don't fundamentally understand that issue. Um, And... Clearly, based on the court's decision, they are explicitly identifying our community and will continue to identify our community and other marginalized populations as folks whose rights should be in question. And again, that's why we need to guarantee that whether it's through the legislature or another process, that we have protections in Colorado for same-sex marriage. It, It strikes me, though, that much of what you're saying there depends on a continuation of Democratic majorities. It's not to say that there aren't any Republicans who would support these measures, but uh, they would seem to me much more likely to pass if you maintain a Democratic governor and a Democratic House and Senate. Do you see the midterms now as somewhat existential Absolutely. Yes. I think if you hadn't already. Yes. Well, of course, we we did already think that the midterms were going to be incredibly critical um, in terms of what is going to be accomplished in Colorado. We know that the state Senate is vulnerable. But if anything, my hope is that this decision will motivate and mobilize voters to turn out to vote and see what the stakes are. You know, historically, Republicans have been the ones that have been motivated when it comes to abortion. And 
I think we have not been on the other side of this. The ball is in Democrats' court. And in order to guarantee that a pro-equality majority exists in the legislature, Democrats are going to need to see what those stakes are and ensure that their ballots get in this November. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Garrett Royer is deputy director and head of the policy team at One Colorado, which fights for LGBTQ equality. When the draft opinion of the abortion decision was leaked back in May, I asked Governor Jared Polis about how it might cascade affecting gay rights. Your right to marry your husband is actually newer case law than Roe v. Wade. Do you worry about the future, say, of your marriage in terms of federal recognition, uh, given the makeup of the court? Well, I sure hope it doesn't come to that, right? And and I think it's very important that we respect marriage. I, as I said, I'd support uh, it in our you know state law that that makes it explicit here in Colorado because we don't currently have that. We just have same sex marriage because of the Supreme Court, which we're grateful for. You know, like you, Ryan, I kind of grew up in a time where we looked aspirationally and hopefully towards the Supreme Court for expanding freedom. Right? We read about historic. Uh, decisions like Brown versus Edge Board of Education that integrated our schools, Loving, which allowed for interracial marriage, of course, Roe versus Wade, Oberfell Hodges, which allowed same-sex marriage. I, I do worry, like a lot of Coloradans do, that we're now in a situation where we're worried about the Supreme Court taking away our freedoms. And of course, as Coloradans, we want to stand up for protecting our freedoms. Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis speaking with me in May. And we'll be right back with why three professors of color chose to leave the University of Denver. They all taught in the same program. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? During our lunch break, we'd be sitting outside, like, peeling mangoes and eating them fresh. And then I'd go inside to, like, dance these Afro-Brazilian, Afro-Caribbean style movements. I think that's when I most felt myself. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Quien Are We everywhere you listen. Demanding workloads, microaggressions, and suspicions of pay inequity. They're some of the reasons three professors of color have decided to leave the University of Denver, all from the Graduate School of Professional Psychology. We'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Dr. Terry Davis, director of the PsyD program at the University of Denver in the Graduate School of Professional Psychology. So my first job after being newly minted with my Ph.D. from Ohio State was at the University of Denver in the Counseling Center. So I came there in 1995 to 1997 as a staff psychologist in what was just then the Counseling Center. And then I went away for 17 years and came back to become director of the PsyD program, and I've been here for eight years. April Alexander, I'm an associate professor in the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at the University of Denver, Um, have been here for six years and primarily teach in the Master's in Forensic Psychology program and also serve as director of two of our clinics, one doing outpatient competency restoration for defendants in the community and then another one running a treatment program for girls who've experienced trauma. Uh, received my doctorate in 2012 and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in forensic psychology. My first 
first job was at Auburn University as a faculty for three years and then came to DU in 2016. Dr. Travis Heath, I have served as the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Graduate School of Professional Psychology for about the last two years. I've also served as the co-director of the International Disaster Psychology Trauma and Global Mental Health Program. I was at Metropolitan State University of Denver for 13 years. I came to DU almost two years ago. Professors Alexander and Davis are both black women. Professor Heath is multiracial, black, white, and Brazilian. They're leaving a department that has 30 core faculty, nine of whom are people of color. So this departure means the faculty of color ratio will shrink by a third. These educators sat down with CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter, who joins us. All right, Elaine Tassi, in this interview, they discuss some of the factors contributing to their departures, some of which I mentioned earlier. Yes, exactly. And it sounds like they were really having some difficulties that remind me of some of the experiences that I had when I worked as a college professor. Why don't we begin with April Alexander talking about how many of her students have never had a Black professor to that point. Uh, why, Why was that important? When she talked about students not having a Black professor, it is on the one hand talking about how out of place you can feel at a school like DU, which only has about 3 or 4% Black students. But it also speaks to how students can't always find a professor who looks like them to be a part of their dissertation committee. So they seek out someone who does look like them, even if it's at another institution. And during these interviews, all three faculty members said that they have been asked to do this, but it takes up extra time and they don't get paid for it. So I have students and we all teach graduate students, so master's and doctoral level students, and we talk about this during orientation. Am I the first black teacher or professor you've had? And for a lot of them, the answer is yes. They went through K through 12 education without a black teacher, went through undergraduate education without a black professor. So this is the first time you've even had contact with a black professor. And now this black professor's talking about race or talking about other difficult subjects. So you've spent your whole life not even having these conversations. The curriculum you've had isn't centering marginalized or minoritized voices. Uh, So now you get to grad school, and this is a challenge for you because you're not even used to having these conversations. Even on my way out, I've had a few students, both at DU and a couple other Colorado colleges, ask me to be on their dissertation committee uh, because they've never had a black professor. And they said, this is my last time before I get my doctorate where I want a black woman to be in the room and be on my committee. Wow. And so I've done three of those this year with one more to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's special, and that kind of shows the absence of our voices in this work. Just like April, I've been able to be on dissertation committees and or be a consultant to uh, black, particularly black uh, women students in getting their master's or their doctorate. And that's been very meaningful, and I've never talked about it because it's just something I felt compelled to do. Like, that's part of why... I'm at a predominantly white institution, is to help that happen. And it's not felt like a burden. It's actually felt like a blessing and a gift to be able to be there. But I worry, given that we're leaving, that, you know, who's go- there's not like a horde of people, right, waiting for, you know, waiting to take our place and, and step in to do that work. Like April and Terry are saying, 
there's a part of that that I'm honored to do it. I'm not sure that, yeah, you can put you served on a dissertation committee, but the amount of labor that's involved is different per committee and, and how much like heart and soul you're putting into something. And I don't know how, I'm not aware of ways universities sort of capture that part. So it's an honor to do it and I'll continue to do it. And also it's disappointing because I feel like it, it's not really recognized the, the amount of time and energy and like soul energy that goes into that kind of project. Yeah, that is eye-opening for me. Um, besides the demands of the job, each of these professors talked about what motivated them to leave. Did you notice any patterns, Elaine? Yeah, I did. Both professors, Heath and Alexander, are going to be earning a little bit more at their new jobs than what they're earning now. But they said that they didn't leave for those reasons. Hmm. It was often because they felt that they weren't getting the support that they needed from their departments or from their peers, and they didn't have much support with the work that they were doing either. And it sounds like sometimes it was emotionally painful for them. Um, Professor Davis even talked about feeling traumatized. Yeah, that was one of the parts that was really painful for me to hear. I used to teach journalism at the college level, and I could really relate to some of her feelings. I'm the program director. I am also tenured. However, the administrative demands have precluded my being able to really focus and delve into actually research, uh, which is one of the reasons why I am leaving. What was your overall experience during those eight years? Uh, There has been a lack of resources and opportunities to actually be the leader that I know myself to be. So I've been very transitional in a system that has not wanted to change, been slow to change, wants to stay the same. Um, And so I have had to figure out how to um, maintain a system using mainly myself with a few shared staff members among the entire school with no one directly supporting the program along with me, but students. So that was another reason why I needed to leave. I I can't uphold a system that doesn't value me um, and or put in enough resources to make, make the program run even more effectively and efficiently than it, it does now. So were requests made to get those things that you needed and those requests were not honored? Yes. However, last year there was funding made to hire an associate um, CID program director, yay. However, the faculty thought instead of finding someone to help in the transition to the new CID director, they would just wait until the new CID director gets hired and then they'll look for that assistant or associate for them. So I don't get benefit of it at all. So given the fact that I supervise faculty, some who are older or ad- more advanced to me in terms of their their number of years and then those that are behind in terms of number of years in the academy, but day-to-day having to navigate what they say and what they do in classrooms, in supervision and other relationships, and then how I have to, as director, decide what steps I have to take, need to take, or just can't take literally in another day or another hour is also part of this. So I'm not like out of the trauma. It's something that is occurring still 
on an everyday basis. It wasn't just Professor Davis who talked about a lack of resources. Professor Alexander mentioned that that, too, was a motivator for her departure. Uh, She talked about having multiple demands on her and then mentioned that even though she's only one person, the school posted several job openings that together encompass all she'd been doing. Yes, exactly. When she mentioned that there were several postings to replace the one job that she has, it really gives you an idea of the size of her workload and the amount of time that she must have to spend to get all of her work done. So there's the coursework. There is the community work that she does. And then there's what she deals with on a day-to-day basis with her peers, right? That's exactly right. It's all stuff that you can never really quantify. It's an experience that I remember dealing with also when I taught at the college level. And sometimes you just feel like you're all alone because there's nobody that looks like you that you can turn to. There's a lot of great things that are happening at DU and within our department. Uh, We have a lot of flexibility to do some innovative things with our students, build programs uh, like I have. But where are the resources? And when do we take the time to renegotiate our workload? So workload is one of the primary reasons in which I'm leaving in that I'm continuing to get grants. I recently got a federal grant to create a new program where uh, the grant helps pay for students' time so that they're not in an unpaid field placement or internship position with no extra resources. So things like billing and managing the grant, I also have to do that in addition to training the students. In addition to my teaching load, I've taught anywhere from seven to 10 classes in a single year while doing the supervision of students, while doing research, while doing community. So there hasn't been that explicit opportunity to renegotiate what I'm doing and what that looks like for me both from a professional and personal perspective. And that's just counting the things that count. And uh, Travis brought that up earlier. Uh, We often talk about invisible labor. Uh, Given our identities as Black people at a university, we get these extra asks. So it is the ask to be on a dissertation committee for a student in education who's not even in our program. It's the additional ask of being on a committee because they want a Black voice and want more representation on a committee. That's not extra pay. That's doesn't count for much extra. It takes people away from doing research and um, other activities in order to get promoted even further in academia. And again, this isn't just a problem for us. This is a problem for a lot of Black academics across the country. Um, Second, that protection of tenure that not all faculty have, uh, that gives you a little bit more freedom, but it doesn't protect you from everything else. So, You'll have a day where you go to a meeting and something is said that is hostile or discriminatory against you. You're dealing with that. I get back to my office and then that's when a student runs in and says, I need help. This happened with my supervisor. This happened with my professor. So it's like Mm -hmm. I didn't even have a moment to breathe and process my own stuff. And then (laughs) this is being brought to me. So, yeah, it's an and that you're battling this at the same time as wanting to help and support your students because all three of us are committed to that work. Um, I say I'm there first for my students, and I don't think that's the case with everybody who's in academia. And so that does come at a cost in a number of ways. Well, again, so many benefits, but at a cost. So when you say there's nothing that I can do, do you feel empowered to say, excuse me, um, 
your comment was disturbing for X, Y, or Z reason. And then what? Um, so they're not going to accept that. And then what? And then they're on to teach the next year and they teach the same stuff. So uh, I don't have any power, any say, um, and that's uh, what's difficult with our students. I can help support them and validate their feelings and all of that in the moment, but then what? Is that an experience that resonates for you, Travis? Oh, absolutely. Um, the system's not prepared to deal with these sorts of things. It, it, it's a colonial system. It, it the university, I mean, it was it was conceived with a colonial logic, and, and it's not prepared to have really difficult conversations about, for example, the line between hate speech and academic freedom, right? Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Yeah, what, what I mean is like what April's talking about. Sometimes, if if a, a professor someone with power in the institution says something that is offensive, is microaggressive, et cetera. And factually incorrect. And absolutely. There, there's, you know, um, and, and maybe does so in a way that, that that's harmful. Um, yeah, there can be some education around DEI, but if, if the same thing's happening over and over again, this becomes an HR issue, right? And so April's uh, responsive, and then what, is is perfect because that's what I felt for two years. And then what? And then where do I go next? So Ryan, what thoughts come to mind when you listened to that tape? You know, it gives me the sense of treading water that you want to swim, you want to propel yourself forward. And yet there's so much that is in a way, keeping you from that sort of progress. And so treading water, for some reason, is the image that comes to mind as I hear that. Yeah, I totally see what you mean. So both Professors Heath and Alexander say they will earn more at their new jobs than they make now, yeah? They said that they would be earning more money, but that that wasn't necessarily the motivating factor to make them take new jobs. They also told me that they don't know what each other makes, and they suspect that the new faculty members that might be hired to replace them may come in earning more money than what they're earning now. And that would be very frustrating, I imagine. But because it's a private institution, it seems like they could never be totally sure. Well, we can't know. Uh, we're a private university, so our salaries aren't posted. Um, I know uh, I was really happy about Colorado's Equal Pay for Equal Work Act that going forward, uh, when you look at job descriptions, you will see the salaries. So I'm seeing salaries right now for junior level faculty that are uh, that were way higher than what I was hired at. Uh, Wait so a minute. The junior level faculty whose pay you're able to see that you now you, you now have job postings online, and so with the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act, you can see the salaries of new employees of DU of what they would be offered if yeah. they were to yeah. take the job. Yes, yeah, so that's okay. yeah, so that's been interesting to be able to now see that among my colleagues. No, I don't know their salaries unless we were to talk about it. You are of the opinion that what you're earning does not compare with... Oh, we, we know this in academia, period, and DU has had salary surveys. Uh, DU has been previously sued um, and had lawsuits on occasions with the law school with inequities between female and male faculty. 
So we have historical data to suggest that. But it should, we, we shouldn't have to be doing this. See, see, the problem, it's a systemic problem, which is the lack of transparency. And that somehow you can say we're a private institution, which, again, I understand it's not just a DU thing, but we're a private institution and therefore we, we can't be, let you we know what be we're transparent. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you're starting from that, like when we're talking about steps to take, if you're starting from that platform that you cannot be transparent, it's pretty hard to move forward in terms of labor and resources in an effective way. Um, were you about to say something, Terry? I'm a director of a program, and I do not know the salaries of any of the people who report to me. So why don't you? That's a great question. And that means that when I've had to and when I do advocate, it's all philosophical. Philosophically, I believe this person should be paid more. Uh, And I know that I'm right about that, but what it is and how much it is, have no clue. Now, what were some of Dr. Travis Heath's main concerns? Well, he was a little bit closer to the vest with regard to some of the things that he was uncomfortable with. But he actually said that he thought students were being harmed. Harmed? Harmed how? He didn't get into too much detail when I asked him about that. I don't have too much more to add other than what my colleagues have said. What I'll say is that I think our students, um, especially our black students, uh, you know, our students of color have been suffering in a lot of ways, you know, and and what basically I've been told is that they feel like either at best they can only show up as partially themselves and at worst they feel like active harm is being done. And I don't want to get into the particulars because I owe it to the students not to, but, um, you know... for me, that that's the part that I can't reconcile, um, because if I stay here and that's continuing, I'm complicit with that. You know, it doesn't matter how I'm racialized; I'm complicit with that. Is how I view that. You know, and and if I'm um, behaving in ways that the academy traditionally behaves, then I'm a de facto white man, no matter what I actually am. That that that's that's what I'm performing. Travis Heath, along with April Alexander and Terry Davis, professors of color who are leaving the University of Denver. They spoke with CPR race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie. Before we rejoin them, Elaine reached out to Shelley Smith Acuna, outgoing chair of DU's Graduate School of Professional Psychology. She declined our request for an interview and instead responded to written questions by voice memo. So very sorry to see these talented faculty members leave. We have such admiration for their work and all that they've done here. And I know that with the amazing opportunities that they have before them, their contributions will continue to grow and deepen, but their legacy must continue here at DU. We owe it to our students for that legacy to continue. The faculty have serious concerns, we know that, and we're seeking to listen very closely to our departing faculty as well as to our students. This isn't easy, of course, and I definitely know that listening isn't enough and that change hasn't been as swift as we and certainly they would like for it to be. But we're committed to making the changes that need to be made here as quickly as we possibly can. In a very real way, I admire the students who've been speaking up. They care about this place and they care about these issues and have the courage to act. We want these issues to be cared about. We want to further the progress we've already made and we want to set the stage for students of color to thrive here. That's the path of growth going forward and we're dedicated to walking that path. 
Elaine also asked if there's an intention to fill these vacancies with diverse candidates. We're really looking at how we're recruiting their replacements, and we're also looking at ways that we can ensure that the trajectory that they've created doesn't stop, that it continues. You had another question about the impact next semester on the class coverage, and we are in the process of hiring faculty and visiting faculty to make sure that everything is covered fully for our next academic year. Tassie, were you able to find out anything else from the dean? Yes, I was just able to talk to her on the phone for the first time. She didn't want me to record it, but she gave me an example of a way that the faculty have been able to make a difference. Uh, What'd she say about that? Well, she was telling me that these three faculty members have made it so that now, when students give a professor negative feedback on a written evaluation, that that professor is supposed to respond to the student about the evaluation in writing. Which I suppose makes the student feel more seen and heard. Yeah, it sounds like a step in the right direction. Anything else you found since you interviewed these professors? Yes, just this week I found out that they did find a replacement for Terry Davis. And the very dean that I spoke with is also stepping down from that role. She's returning to teaching full time. She's a white woman and she is going to be replaced by a black man. And she mentioned that having a man of color there in that role might help address some of the concerns that both faculty and students have brought up. Did the three departing faculty members tell you what they would be doing next? Yes, we did touch on that. Dr. April Alexander and Dr. Travis Heath were both recruited by other schools. Dr. Terry Davis is keeping quiet on what her next steps are going to be. I'm choosing not to share that because... Um, One, I'm still figuring out my option. So um, that's one. Two, I want the focus to be until my last day at DU to be on the program and the students and making sure I've shored it up and made the systemic changes I can make to it. So I have chosen not to share. I needed to let the provost know in the summer, and then I let my colleagues know in September. So I resigned in September, effective August of 2022. What about you? What was the date that you indicated that you weren't going to be returning? Yeah, for myself, um, I wasn't on the job market. I had full plans on staying at DU. Uh, We're having some changes in administration, so I was uh, planning on staying and waiting that out. um, And hopefully that will resolve some of the concerns with workflow um, that I'm experiencing. But an opportunity came my way, and I decided to accept that position in late February. So you're going to UNC Charlotte. Correct. And have they found somebody to replace you yet? No, we're in the process of that. We are posting two or three positions for my position right now. In terms of like, you know, what's next for me, um, you know, it was similar to April. I, I wasn't seeking something new. It sort of found me and it ended up being a good fit. And, that... and do you want to say a little bit about where you're going and what you'll do? Yeah, so I'm going to San Diego State University, and I'll be uh, the chair of the uh, Counseling and School Psychology Program. Were you hired as a tenure-track professor? <laughs> oh, boy. So I was, I was tenured at Metro. I was not uh, granted tenure at DU. I will come in with tenure at my next position. That's sort of all I'll say about that. 
they hired you as a tenured faculty member. I was under the impression that if you already had tenure from one institution, that it carries with you to the institution that you go to. Yeah, I don't really know what to say about that. I mean, I suppose um, I was told there was like not precedent for that and that um, so I'm you know, anyway, I was told there just wasn't precedent for that. So I had to sit again for tenure. I do think it's interesting that, you know, the place where I'm headed does view me as tenure worthy. Any last thoughts from you, Dr. Terry? I still want students of color to come to grad school, even at GSPP, the graduate school of professional psychology. Where we're leaving, I still want there to be future generations of students who come and get their master's and their doctorates and transform the world. So it doesn't sound as though you're particularly bitter about anything, just I'm ready too to... old and crotchety to be bitter. <laughs> like that, that's a developmental stage I'm long past. Okay. This is just about reality and navigating reality. Elaine, thanks so much for sharing the interview with us. Oh, thank you for having me. CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter, Elaine Tassi. When we come back, we meet the keeper of the cup, the Stanley Cup. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver's first drinking fountains were not connected to plumbing. In the early 20th century, they operated from individual storage reservoirs filled regularly from horse-drawn tanks. Better to drink water from a fountain than a polluted creek. But there was a problem. Water running off people's lips and out their mouths as they drank ran right back into the storage tank to be slurped up by the next thirsty user. That all changed in the 1940s under Dr. Florence Rena Sabin. When she was in her 70s, Dr. Sabin traveled across the state on her own dime to get support for healthcare reforms that ultimately cut Denver's tuberculosis rate by half. Dr. Sabin's efforts led to cleaner streets, fewer rats, better milk, and fresh, clean water for drinking fountains and the state. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. The Colorado Avalanche will host a championship parade Thursday with the Stanley Cup front and center, which means Phil Pritchard will be too. Pritchard's official title is Vice President and Curator with the Hockey Hall of Fame, but in hockey circles, he's known as the Keeper of the Cup. And if you watch the ceremony after Sunday's victory, you saw Pritchard and his glorious locks bring out the coveted trophy. Ladies and gentlemen, the Stanley Cup. Soon, depending on where you are and perhaps who you know, there's a chance you'll run into Pritchard. Colorado's Game 6 win not only set off a raucous celebration, it was the precursor to an annual tradition. During the series, Pritchard spoke with CPR senior producer Anthony Cotton about that, and also whether players in the final were superstitious about seeing the cup before they'd won it. Well, I, I think more than anything, Anthony, I mean, it's I don't know if they don't want to see it. I, I think they don't think they deserve it until they've actually won it. So they're respecting the the aura and the tradition of the Stanley Cup that, hey, I've earned it. I finally won this so I can view it. I can pick it up. I can drink out of it and all that other fun stuff. But that's what makes the game so great is there's so many of these traditions in that. 
And it's funny because a lot of players that have retired that never had the chance to win the Stanley Cup still won't go and get a photo with it today. They don't think they have earned that right. And all the power to them because that's the respect that, that hockey has, the respect that Stanley Cup brings. And it's, uh, I, I think it's a great part of the game. So like you say, the players feel like they have to earn it. And when, when a team does win the Cup, there's a tradition where the players or other team officials get to spend a day with it. And I understand that goes back almost 30 years now. Do you? And you've been there pretty close to 30 years. Yeah, I've been there for all of them, for every year. Uh, yeah, it is a great tradition, and it's the only one in sport that has anything like this in hockey. But each each person gets to spend a day with the cup, like you mentioned. And it, it's funny because the players understand and the management and the coaching and everybody understand that the team is much bigger than the guys on the ice. It's the the mom and dad, the grandparents, the brothers and sisters that drove them to games as they were kids. Each one of them has become a Stanley Cup champion indirectly through the player himself. So the ability to share with everybody in their community and in their towns or their family or something like that, it's a big part of winning the Stanley Cup and the opportunity to take the cup home for a day and say thank you your first coach, your first teacher, your mom and dad, or what have you, and share the festivities with them is is so special, and it it can only done be done with the greatest trophy in sport, the Stanley Cup. And so, how does that schedule get set? I mean, you've got guys literally when the season ends, they live all around the world. What happens, and it's a it's actually a masterfully done schedule, but. Just for example, last year we were in six countries uh, around the world. They have 100 days to complete this tour. So all the management, like we just spoke about, the coaching staff, the trainers, the equipment guys, the players, the owners, the team parade, the parties, the partner events they have, they all come out of that 100 days. So in a nutshell, we basically have a world map and we map out where everybody's going and we try and make the best geographical plan schedule through flight, train, rental, whatever it might be to make it all work. It's amazing when it's all done because we, we get it done. And I mean, I've seen photos of you literally putting the cup through airport security. You know, like exactly. everybody with their suitcases and carry-ons. Exactly. And it's amazing, Anthony, because people don't think of that sometimes when they have their day with a cup or the fans see it, that one day we're in this city, the next day we're in a different country. We have to make this all work not only on our schedule, the player's schedule, but an airline schedule or a rental car schedule or what have you. To make it all work out. What's the weirdest, most complicated trip with the cup you've had to make? <laughs> Way to put me on the spot. Uh, you know, we've been to 29 countries now. All have been above the equator. Uh, we've been from coast to coast, north to south. Just trying to like a few years ago with the Washington Capitals, Philip Grubauer was the one of the goalies for the uh, Capitals, and he's from the Bavarian Mountains in 
in Germany. So I think we flew Toronto, Frankfurt, Frankfurt, Munich, and then met him and then went up to his where he's from in the mountains and to his hometown and the party began. So it's none of them are easy to get to, but with a little bit of help and assistance and teamwork, just like the guys on the ice, we make it work. And you are always the one, you are one of your assistants. You have to Yeah, my tra- uh, there's four or five of us that travel throughout the summer. Pretty uh pretty fun summer for everybody, especially those people that have won the cup. And we're thrilled to be a little part of it. So when you're photographed with the cup <laughs> you know, you're you're wearing gloves, it's it's a it's a very formal looking thing. But I'm imagining when all of these players and the like have the cup, they're not as careful. Like, do you do you cringe when you see how some people spend their day with it? Well, uh, I mean, just to back up about the white gloves and that, because we work at the Hockey Hall of Fame and Museum, all curatorial staff at our museum wear white gloves when handling an artifact. Whether it's the Hockey Hall of Fame, whether it's the Smithsonian, whether it's an art gallery, everybody wears white gloves, and that's protecting and respect for the artifact. The unique thing hockey has is they have an artifact, but it's also a current trophy. So when we hand it over to the team that wins it, they have earned that right to pick that up. Uh, They understand all about the history of it and the aura of it and respect the traditions of it. So they're, they're very cautious with it as well. At the end of the day, we want to make sure, and so do they, that the Stanley Cup is held in its highest regards because they know the next day it's going to another player on their team. So we want to make sure it's it's all okay and everything, and we go from there. But I do understand it's, it's perhaps the cup has disappeared at one point. Did that happen? Yeah. You know what? In the world of travel these days, when uh, we do connections, sometimes we don't make the connection. It's awful for anybody when their luggage doesn't make it. It's especially awful when our luggage doesn't make it. Uh, so we we keep our fingers crossed. We work with the airlines. We work with customs. We work with the TSA. We work with the security to make sure everything goes well. So what was this instance, or, or have there been, unfortunately, new uh, There's been a couple of ones. Uh, fortunately, it's not very often, but I know you can't see me right now, but I've got my fingers crossed. It doesn't happen again. So what was your hockey career like? Did you play? Did you grow up in Canada? <laughs> my, my face got in the way of the puck too many times when I was young, so I realized I, my hockey days weren't going to last very long, but I still actually play in beer league hockey. I think the fun part about it is uh, that everybody wanted to win the Stanley Cup growing up as a kid. I'm, I'm very fortunate, I think, and very honored to be able to hand handle the Stanley Cup and still be part of that. How did it happen that you became the keeper of the Cup? It's it's funny, and if, if my wife was here right now, she would probably say I was in the wrong spot at the wrong time. But she's not here, so we'll go with what I'm going to say. Uh, I was fortunate in, in college I took a sports administration course that ended up at the Ontario Hockey League, and there from there I kind of moved up the ladder, if you wish, to the Canadian Hockey League and then up to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, so I'm on year 1988, so I'm on year 34 now of traveling with the Cup and being the curator at the Hall of Fame. 
when I went to school, did I plan to be the keeper of the cup? Not not a chance. Didn't even didn't even think about that. Wanted to work in hockey. And here I am all those years later, still wearing the white gloves and still looking after the greatest trophy in sport. So there are other championship trophies that perhaps approach the cup in recognition. You've got the NFL's Vince Lombardi Trophy. You've got the Claret Jug, which is awarded to the winner of golf's British Open. Is there is there another trophy that, that perhaps catches your eye for one reason or another? To me, I mean, the, the two you just said, the, the Jug and, and the Super Bowl and everything, they all have their own traditions and I think is great. I think the Masters, the Green Jacket, is an amazing thing as well. But for each sport, regardless of what it is and whatever the trophy is, it's recognizing the champion in that sport, and that's what makes it unique. Uh, nothing against the other sports. They make a new Super Bowl every year. They make a new World Series trophy. They make a new uh, basketball trophy every year. And Stanley Cup, if there's only one. And that's, I think that's what makes it very unique. And obviously, Anthony, I'm biased a bit, but... Uh, it's pretty cool. Phil Pritchard of the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. He'll be in Denver Thursday morning when the Avalanche's parade begins, 9 a.m. at Civic Center Plaza. The Avs victory caps an impressive year for hockey in Colorado. The University of Denver won the NCAA Men's Division I title in April, while the team from Denver East High won a national prep championship the month prior. And that is Colorado Matters for today. Here is our parade of talent. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Join us at 7 this evening for live coverage of Primary Night in Colorado. I'll be joined by our public affairs editor, Megan Verlee, and reporters around the state. This is CPR News and KRCC.